Good morning and welcome to Removing the Mask, How to Identify and Develop Giftedness with Your Students Who Are Living in Poverty. Our um, presenter today is Ellen Williams. She's also a co-presenter or co-author of the book, Removing the Mask. So I'm going to hand it over to you, Ellen. Thank you. Take questions at the end. Good morning, everyone. I'm glad you're here and uh, interested in this topic because it is something I'm very passionate about. I hope that you will write in any questions as we go. I would so much rather have a two-way conversation with you about this. Uh, I don't want to just uh, be a talking head. I'd like us to discuss your questions and any um, information that I can give you that may help you serve or find gifted children in your district, in your state or country, uh, that's what this is all about. Um, the name of the, this webinar is What is Removing the Mask? And uh, the book that's on your screen there is the latest revised edition of this book. The book was originally written um, by Dr. Slocum and Dr. Payne, and I had the privilege of updating this third edition. And it has uh, wonderful tools in it that can be used in any district, in any environment, to be sure that you have a level playing field in the identification process and that you are not uh, discriminating against children who have had limited opportunities for high level thinking and formal language delivery. So, all right, let's see if I can make things work. It worked just fine a minute ago. We'll see how it goes now. Dr. Payne and I agree that there are many different faces of giftedness. It's important that we look for children who have uh, an innate ability in all races, cultures, religions, languages, subject areas, and social classes. If you have had a experience with uh, Dr. Payne's book, Removing the Mask, you know that children in different social classes may have different behaviors that are accepted in their class and that are not acceptable in a school environment. So we're going to talk about that today and how we can be sure that we are finding potential in all of our children. When you think of giftedness, what characteristics would you look for? If you'd write in the in the chat box for me, just tell me one thing that you would expect children to have. Above average reading skills, good. Someone says an eagerness to learn. Thanks, Stephanie. What else? If you have that enthusiasm, maybe they have an advanced reading. What if they can't read? How would you, what about them would you think would make you think they're gifted? Articulation. All right. That's, that's a, an interesting one to talk about here. Uh, it may be an oral vocabulary that they're different than the other ones. Processing skills, sees connections and relationships. Sharon, that really is key. For children in poverty, it may their characteristics may manifest themselves differently than you're used to seeing in the average population. 
This is a chart that I used for years when I was talking to parents about, do you think your child is gifted? And we'd say that gifted learners ask the questions, but the high achievers know the answers. Gifted kids just seem, that's right, Brenda, students are able to speak about a topic and they seem to know a lot and you don't know where they got that. Um, sometimes we say they're highly curious. Uh, they're mentally and physically involved in their learning. They're not just attentive. I always believe that a high achiever loves the teacher and wants to please her. The gifted learner may not. They just sort of love ideas and may not really like the teacher trying to restrict what they're doing. Um, an example that I could give is like if you were teaching in third grade, which I did at one time in my life, and I asked them what the state of Texas capital was, and the child said Austin, and the teacher, I said, good, that's correct, and I turned to go on, and then he went into this long, elaborate discussion of, did you know that Austin was founded by, da 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 da, -da and they just elaborate, elaborate, and you turn around, and you look at him, and you wonder, where did he get all that information? Gifted kids just seem to absorb things without being formally taught that is above their um, average age or um, interest for their um, developmental stage. One of these on here that I think is important is the one that says high achievers work hard, but gifted learners play around, but yet they test well. It's like they've absorbed the information without having to pay attention as closely. And with kindergarten students, very young students, the last one I think is the most telling. If a child is five years old and they like to be outside riding their bike, kicking the soccer ball, playing with their peers, then they're more likely to be a high achiever. A gifted learner tends to prefer older students or adults as their peers, and it's because they're their intellectual equals, and they may act very differently than their peers and not be satisfied by being with their peers. Here are some of the negative characteristics that we observe in gifted children, but because their behavior may be off, they may be acting out in class because they already know what's being discussed, Limited vocabulary or stuttering can make you think that a child isn't gifted when in fact they have the ability and their mind is very fast, but especially in poverty, they may not have the words to put with all the things that are in their mind that they're thinking about. If they don't finish their work or they're sloppy or careless, we may think that they're not very bright when in fact they are a multi has multi uh, potentials. They are caring about so many things and they don't either get started or they don't finish what they're working on. Disorganization seems to really bother a lot of teachers and yet there are many gifted people who are very disorganized. It goes with that other one. They're thinking about so many things they can't seem to focus on anything. They can be impulsive and they can be a class clown. Do you think some of those ne negative characteristics can keep us from seeing someone's giftedness? If they're really annoying, do you think that we don't think they're as smart as someone, Cindy says definitely, uh, as someone who is um, 
really attentive and giving you their undivided um, uh, attention when they're looking at you. In poverty, Dr. Payne and Dr. Slocum identified, that's right, Cindy, their minds are always thinking. And that's where that disorganization and uh, skipping around the different ideas may come from. In poverty, Dr. Payne and Dr. Slocum identified these things that we need to be looking for. They may have advanced language, but it may be in a casual register. Or they may be communicating through a nonverbal body language kind of things that um, is different from other children of their peers. They may have an unusual perspective. And this, I think, is very important. In poverty, children seem, if they are, the more intelligent they are, the more potential they have, they are, the more sensitive they are to ideas of justice and fairness. They may have a very fine-tuned sense of humor, and it may not be appropriate for school. It may be a more adult sense of humor. Can they use storytelling in casual or colorful ways? Yes, Cindy, they pick up social cues easily. They're very aware of their relationships with other people. They may be able to discern patterns in human behavior. And although they may not have had as many experiences in analytical thinking in an academic setting, children in poverty are real problem solvers. And they are watching people all the time and can tell you a lot about them, things that you might not have even noticed. They ask questions, but they usually focus on relationships rather than academic kind of relationships. But they will have an extensive memory about people and conversations. So a lot of this has to do with casual register, but yet still showing problem solving ability, strong sense of humor, great storytelling ability, but it may not have that formal language structure that we're used to seeing in middle class children. Now, we need to decide, do children in poverty know less than children from more affluent families? Or could they have equal potential but have a different knowledge base of information from children who grew up in middle class or wealth? As educators, less experiences, exactly, Cindy, they, but they have experiences and the experiences that they've had, they know better than anyone. And here's what I mean about that. If you have children who are raising younger siblings, they may know how to change a diaper, cook a meal, um, operate appliances that a child whose mother always does that for them doesn't know how to do. Whether it's operating the microwave, heating up a bottle, mixing up a formula. Things like that. If a child has had experiences in poverty, those experiences, they know very well. And they, they, they're sometimes, it's a different set of skills that they have learned. That's right. They're trying to cope with their environment. And because of that, one of the key points in, in this book is that we need to have differentiated methods of identification to find gifted children from poverty. We can't use the same tools because their environments are so different.
Now, I bet most of you have been through framework training. If you have, you know these next few slides, but it's really important that we review what resources are. To better understand people from poverty, the definition of poverty is the extent to which an individual does without resources. And it's not just money. Financial resources are the one we generally think of, but children are also part of their uh, growth and development is affected by their emotional resources. They're being evaluated for a gifted population according to their mental resources. And that's what makes this really, really difficult to, is that we're evaluating if their resources are the same, they can be evaluated similarly. But if they have different resources, we can't look only at their, for example, their mathematical ability or their reading ability. We need to look at a lot of different things. Other resources that we can expect children in all classes to depend on is a spiritual resource as well as a physical resource. Do they have a strong support system behind them? Are they friends, families? And we as teachers can be a part of their support system, whether they have one at home or not. It's important that they have positive relationships and role models and educators or those who work with them in the community can provide that relationship that they need. And these last two are what keep a lot of children who live in poverty out of a gifted program. It is the knowledge of hidden rules and the ability to access formal re register. Do they have the vocabulary, the language ability, and the negotiation skills they need to succeed in school or work? In special education, as a learning disability, we have child find where we go and we really search for them. And I worry that in for a gifted program that we use our child find too, as too much of an, an exclusion method rather than an inclusion method to find them in all races, in all backgrounds, in all classes. And why I say that is because of these last two. And if a child in poverty doesn't have them, we may not see their intellectual potential. It's important to remember that poverty does not mean a lack of character. A lack of financial resources is just a lack of cash. But a family that has a lack of financial resources may have ample spiritual, emotional, or physical resources. Do you know examples of people who come from poverty, they were raised in poverty, but have been extremely successful as an adult? Examples like uh, the musician Jewel, who was homeless in Alaska for a while and lived in a car with her father. Oprah is another example. Maya DeAngelo. Each of them, though, had spiritual an emotional and role model relationships in grandparents, parents or friends that overcame their lack of financial resources. And all of those are very gifted people with different strengths. 
And one of the ones that I think about is um, Mr. Schultz. Now, not Charles Schultz, that was the artist that did uh, Peanuts, but Mr. Schultz, who is the was the retired CEO now of Starbucks. He was raised in the projects in New York City. They know how to adapt, and his role model was his mother. He was the first in his uh, family to go to college, and he went on a basketball scholarship, which was his talent. But with his mother's emotional support, his talent of basketball, he went to college and now is one of the wealthiest people in the United States because of his business development of the business Starbucks. But he came from poverty and someone supported him with enough resources to overcome his lack of financial resources. Now, here are reasons that children who are under-resourced may not be recognized as gifted. If they use informal language, if they have less experience with critical thinking, if their storytelling is not organized or sequential, or if there is a class or cultural miscommunication. Those things can make teachers unwilling, unwittingly, they don't know they're doing it, but it can make them think they're not intelligent instead of that they have not learned these skills. These are all things that can be taught. You see, equal methods of identification are not equitable. Children come from lots of different backgrounds. We squeeze them through one gifted identification process using one testing system and we put them into one program and the kids sink or swim and that does not develop and nurture the giftedness that is in children that come from poverty and that's why I'm so passionate about that I believe that this if we can identify those with potential and nurture it using a school-wide enrichment model or one of our tools to adapt the program to fill in the gaps they have, as well as providing the opportunity for um, growth and academic rigor, that we can do a better job of serving all children regardless of their background. You see, if we're identifying only by the things in the orange square here, their performance, their tests, their grading, their teacher ratings, but we don't look at their environmental opportunities, we're just saying this kid is ha is more has more resources. This child is more um, has more opportunities. We're really not saying they're more gifted, unless we level the playing field and that's what our book tries to do for you. The current identification process is to, to select an identified number of students from a bigger population that depends heavily on standardized test scores. Now Dr. Slocum is who did the initial study on this book and he's who validated these tools. And he decided that in children from poverty, they're not able to pass those standardized test scores. So he developed alternative ways to uh, um, <clears throat> find their strengths other than those test scores. 
You see, children that are more advantaged will score better because they have access to more abstract language in the home environment, and they've been exposed to more opportunities for experimental learning, like vacations, going to a museum, going to preschool. All those opportunities add thinking skills to children. They add vocabulary to children. But the children who don't have that, that doesn't mean they don't still have the potential. And so that's what's wrong with the current system in most districts. And I'll tell you the truth. I've been doing this for years. I've used this book for, oh, golly, 17 years. And there are many districts and the one in the state you're in may have, you may look around and all the gifted kids are over here in this very white, privileged campus, while the children in the Title I campuses that are mostly poor, nobody's identified as gifted there. If that's a situation in your neighborhood, there's a problem with equity in your district. And as I said earlier on the list of resources, the things that are most likely to mask giftedness in children are that we are trying to quantitatively decide if they have superior mental resources, but we're subjectively evaluating them on their ability to access formal register and if they understand the hidden rules of middle class, because that's how our school system runs. It comes from middle class. The teachers are middle class. We have a paper society. We believe in achievement. We um, all the ways that we know to uh, value and uh, what we value are the rules that we put on children and they may come from a different class and if they do, they have a different rule system. So we're going to be talking a little bit about this this morning. Now, I don't have time to go through this whole book. It's a long book. I have a six hour workshop on it and I can train you to use the tools that are in this book. And that's what this is about is I want you to come and sign up for the long one so I can walk you through some of the tools we have. And we're going to talk about those tools briefly. But the whole point of this webinar is children in poverty can be gifted too. We're looking for potential. We're looking for ways to overcome their lacked resources to to supply those resources that they need and help them reach their true potential. This is the chart that if you've taken framework, I know you've seen it, you've heard it before, but let's talk about it. And there are so many, you're right, Cindy, so many gifted children are living in poverty and we're overlooking them. Ruby uses this as how people in different classes look at time and look at money. And I look at this, these are my words, the top row is what they spend time on, but it's also what they worry about. And that's my word. In poverty, you're thinking about survival. That's what you're worried about. Where's your next meal coming from? Do you have heat? Do you have uh, a rule over your, uh, a roof over your head? In middle class, we're worrying about our work. We're thinking about it. I know my whole time as an educator, I spent more minutes of my day thinking about my work than I did about surviving. 
if I'm in wealth, I'm thinking about, I'm worrying about political connections because that's how I'm going to go get more wealth, how it, it accesses my power. And so that, that's where my time is. In poverty, I value relationships because that's where my power is. The more friends I have, the more family I have, the stronger I am. In middle class, we value achievement. Up here on the wall, over my uh, good people skills, that's right, Cindy, is, is that that is a relationship strength. And the better people skills they have, the better they're able to deal with um, solving problems. That is where theirs come from. And mine comes from achievement. Here I've got diplomas on the wall over my head. And I'm proud of my achievements and I put them on the wall. And that is where my pride in that comes because I know the way these things help me. I was able to write a book. I was able to become a consultant. I moved up the chain in public school um, uh, leadership by my achievements. In wealth, you're proud of your financial connections. Financial connections are how you are able to access more money than even what you have. And you know that by a signature, you can get more money and you're proud of, of those connections. You think about your political, you're proud of your financial. Now, let's talk a little bit about the bottom row, how you spend your money. If you have excess income above survival, you're going to spend it on entertainment. And that's because entertainment helps dull the pain of poverty. If you you're going to spread that around, that money around. If you have it, you're more likely to buy a DVR player or a CD or alcohol and entertain with your friends than you are new clothes because the old clothes have served you well so far and they can make it a little bit longer. But entertainment is a way you're going to spend any excess money that you have. In middle class, we spend our money on material security. We like stuff. We like to collect things. Boy, if you could see my house right this minute. Well, I have collectible everything. And um, we often wear things with labels. Uh, Michael Kors or Kate Spade on my purse shows that I am at a middle class level of achievement. And I'm showing this to you with labels and um stuff. We really like to keep stuff. When our house runs out of space, we're going to go get a storage container and put more stuff in it because we won't let it go because it's part of our value system. Our social connections are what we will spend money on. Yes, Cindy, or a bigger house or on our social connections. You're going to spend money on a cotillion, on a political fundraiser, your country club membership, because that shows everybody that of your wealth, it is how you demonstrate your, uh, your class is by spending that money on your social connections, because it goes back to your political connections. It goes back to your financial. All of this is interwoven together to get you further ahead in your class. 
just like entertainment is in building more relationships. So this whole idea of class, we need to understand it. We need to know that there are exceptions in every class. This is not a stereotype. It is a trend that we may see. And yes, there are exceptions, but this what we've seen over history is this is how people demonstrate um, their class and how they spend their time and spend their money. And whatever class they're brought up in, the hidden rules of that class that which they were raised are the ones they bring to school. Now, I'm going to tell you, I used to be in charge of a career in tech program. And we were trying to get job skills for students. And I had a cosmetology teacher tell me that the problem was I was sending her such bad kids that they couldn't pass the test. They didn't take it seriously enough. And she's like, if you would send me better kids, we'd have more children graduate as cosmetologists. What she didn't understand was that the children who needed to become cosmetologists the ones that were in her program were from a different social class than she was. And instead of developing a stronger relationship with them, she was punishing them for the behaviors that in their home was completely acceptable. The hidden rules of the class in which they were raised are the ones they're bringing. And I want to tell you something. Your parents in poverty are sending you the best children they have. They're not hiding other ones at home that are in a, that behave better and are in a higher class. They love their children and they want the best for their children. They have not yet, though, learned the rules of middle class school. And that's where the difference is coming in, is from their class background. You see, school and home have different rules. And we must teach the students that there are two sets of rules. Basketball doesn't have the same rules as football. We cannot blame or feel sorry for students. We have to teach them the rules that they don't know. And if you are familiar with Dr. Slocum's books or Ruby's books or Rita's stories, and I'm sure many of you have seen uh, Rita's stories on YouTube uh, but she's very big on there's a language for school. There's a behavior for school. It may match or be different from the language and behavior you use at home. That doesn't make them good or bad, which is the mistake that teachers often make. There's good behavior. This is bad behavior. It's not good or bad. It's just different. Baseball has different rules than football. And the game of school has its own set of rules. And we need to learn these rules so we can win. If I can give you a gift in this one hour presentation, whether you are working as a social worker or a teacher, if you're working with kids, one of the biggest rules I can give you is if you can teach them that your organization or if it's a classroom has a set of rules and it's just a game and they can play this game and win, you will have to help develop that child a successful strategy that can help them be extremely successful in your environment, whether it's in a club, whether it's in a community center, if it's in school, all kids want to win and they want to be accepted and they have to learn the behaviors and the rules for your environment. Success in school depends on students understanding 
the rules of middle class, especially the rules of behavior, formal language register, story structure, time management, and cognitive and vocabulary development. Now, again, there's a six-hour workshop on this, and I don't have time to go over all of it today, but I wanted to share you a few stories about them and, and, and show you some ways that this book, Removing the Mask, can be extremely helpful for identifying giftedness in children. And it also, I think, just helps extend from framework to look for not just not just getting kids to pass, but to re reaching their own individual potential. Because isn't that what we want for all our kids? We want them to reach their best, to do their dream and be able to reach that dream. We also have to design curriculum and instructional models that nurtures and develops the strengths of all children, including those living in poverty. I don't want to see a child identified for a program and then fail in it. That would be so sad. I think we'd be setting them up for therapy as an adult, making them put them into a system where they can't be successful. We want to give them the tools they need to be academically successful. And to do that, we have to uh, support them once they're in the program. Language structure in poverty is casual and concrete. In school, language is abstract, and we do tend, when I say we, I mean we, because we're all teachers. If we interact with children, I don't care if you're in a lunchroom, if you're on a school bus, you're a teacher, because all adults are teaching children something. And we have to be aware of our role as a teacher when we interact with children, and we should not judge them on their ability to only talk in a casual register. It's not inferior it's different, and we can teach them the right words to use. This is one of Ruby's slides about formal register. And if you are a professional, meaning that you have are working as a, and you have some college education, generally you're exposing your children to 45 million words by the time they get uh, to school. And those words are positive. They have as many as six affirmations are a good job, add a boy, uh, you're so smart for everyone negative of that's wrong, stop that, don't do that. But if you're in a welfare class, you're only hearing about 13 million words and they're one good thing for two negatives. You may not believe me on that, but it is true and we've got some updated research here on the bottom. Uh, of how important this is. And I'm going to tell you a little story of how I know whether a child is going to have adequate vocabulary by the time they get to kindergarten. And I call it the target test. If you are in Target or in a grocery store, could be Walmart, and you're walking through and you see a young mother and she is from middle class or from a professional class, and she's pushing a stroller in, in the buggy, in the cart. And as they go through the store and the child reaches for an apple and goes, bah, bah, and the mother goes, that looks like a ball, doesn't it? That's an apple. Bless your heart. Can you say apple? 
What color is that apple? It's red. That's right. You are so smart. Feel this apple. See how smooth it is? Let's put that in the cart. Or not. But yes, it looks like a ball. She has used so many vocabulary words in a two-way conversation with that child. She's talked about texture, shape, color. She has affirmed that child that what they're seeing and given it a name, Apple. Mothers who are at the professional level who are not stuck in a welfare state of thinking are thinking about developing vocabulary all the time. As I say, they're often in their yoga pants and they have their Starbucks coffee in one hand. Hopefully, they're not on their phone on the other. They're actually carrying on a conversation constantly while they shop with their child. In welfare, you'll see in the Target test, if a mother's going through Target or Walmart or the grocery store and the child reaches for something and says, "ba" for ball, sees an apple, She's more likely to say, sit down, stop that, no, and just keep going. What she's looking at instead of her Starbucks card or her phone may be her Lone Star card or whatever your state is. She's worrying about, do I have enough money to get what I need to get out of here to feed my family? She's focused on surviving. She is not focused on enriching the vocabulary of that child at that time and in, in that moment. That's the difference. And you can see it everywhere you go. If you only see a mother correcting their child, she's not being a bad mother. She's trying to keep the child safe. Sit down. Stop that. Don't stand up in the basket. That's a good. I think I saw your question, a good question there about uh, do they take into uh, account. Let me see if I can get it. I've got to get back. No, they don't. And that's why we believe that they are not for giftedness. The test is probably not valid because it doesn't take in their different registers of language or their level of thinking. Because just like we have this number of words that they're exposed to, children in poverty have not had enough problem solving opportunities to develop the prefrontal cortex of their brain where that high level thinking takes place. It is much lower level in the brain and we have to develop that as, um, as we develop our programs. That's a very good question and that's why we're saying standardized tests may not find our gifted children like they do for middle class. And in this book, we have tools that you can use in place of standardized tests. And that a child can use and demonstrate their proficiency for your building. And I am so glad. Oh, good. I'm glad you see the book, Sue. I always worry that when I uh, show something that you won't be able to see it. Um, I get distracted on mul seeing multiple things here. But we have tools to use in place of standardized test because they're more likely to not pass it because they don't have the words or the thinking. If your child doesn't qualify as gifted on standardized tests, we have to decide, are they not gifted or did their environmental opportunities mask their giftedness? All right, that's really critical. 
And one of the tools that is in our book is called the Environmental Opportunities Profile. There is a complete copy of it in the appendix of this book, as well as you can buy them in sets of 25 from AHA Process. And this is just so good. And it gives us, this is not identifying for giftedness. The Environmental Opportunities Profile of the EOP is deciding whether or not the children have limited resources. That's all it's trying to find. And if your child scores over 30 on this, we're going, whoa, their standardized test is probably not accurate. So if I back up to this screen, here's what we recommend. You do all your testing with whatever you usually use. And all the children you're testing were nominated, right? So somebody saw characteristics of giftedness in them. So if you had from children that did not qualify, go through those and see how many of them are on free or reduced lunch. If they're on free or reduced lunch, those test scores may not be valid, which is the whole point. So then you would use our book and our resources like a plan B to reevaluate using and to get to use the environmental opportunity profile we have, see if their resources are too limited for those to be valid. And if they are, you're going to use the other tools in here and you can still qualify them for a program, whether it fits the district standards are the campus standards. And I'm going to talk about that in just a minute because that is really a key component of removing the mask is that we'd like you to identify whether it's with a label or not, at least provide services as an unidentified but potentially gifted student on your campus by grade level. And this gives you tools to do that. Now, this is a different tool that's in the book, and you can buy it from AHA Process. It's called the Teacher Perception Inventory. And I don't know if you can see this clearly enough. If you have a copy of the book, it's in here, the whole thing. And you can buy them online. We can even, if you contact me, arrange to put it as an online version so that teachers can score it that way. But it looks at the attributes of giftedness from a middle class perspective, as well as from a poverty class perspective of what you may be seeing. And I love it. It takes a long time to administer and you have to really train teachers well to use it. But let's look at the first question. It says, on the left is a positive middle class characteristic that you may see. They're curious about information. They're inquisitive. They don't accept information at first glance. They question and push for more information. And that's what one of y'all said about that. They're very curious, right? Well, in poverty, look at the negative side of that on the right. Obnoxious with questions, likes to stump people with hard questions, enjoys the questions with shock value, questions authority, unwilling to follow the rules. Now, for that question, if we're talking about curiosity, the one on the left may be the way a kid in middle class or wealth re looks. But on the right, that may be how the very same attribute of curiosity may display itself that way. See the difference? Now, look at question number two. 
the negative is on the left. And that's another reason I really like this tool because it it isn't always all the positive ones are not on the left. So you have to go one at a time very carefully. The negative on number two is on the left. It says that kid is stubborn. He avoids tending to other things that need to be done because he isn't through with his own priority. That's very annoying to teachers, isn't it? We see that as a negative thing. But it's the very same perseveration trait that we see on the right. He sticks to the task. He gets the job done. He doesn't give up easily, even when things get difficult. Those are the same thing. It's just whether or not it's a, you're looking at it from a positive or a negative point of view. And for teachers that don't like kids that are outside the box, they may see this in any child as a negative characteristic rather than a positive. But either way, it's a characteristic of giftedness. Uh, number four, they understand the subtleties of language. They use language in powerful ways. La-ti-da on the negative side. That kid has a smart mouth. He uses humor in a destructive manner. He's unable to relate to peers because his own sense of humor isn't as sophisticated. He's the class clown. You will see that in children from poverty because they can help them build relationships. But it's a negative trait in some teacher's judgmental perspective. So that's and so what you do is you for each one you decide is the left or the right the attribute that is most closely associated with this child, and then you score them one through four on one of the sides. Then you add up all the points. And, and people always ask me, well, what is the cutoff point? You should determine the top ones for your campus. It doesn't have to be a set number and yours might not match another campus because you're dealing with your kids. And so you would want a majority of the questions. So it might be 18 out of the 20 something questions. Um, whatever uh, number you think is high when you get them and put it all together. It'll be most of them, but nobody has all of them. We have to look at potential, not just standardized test scores. And gifted children in poverty benefit from a differentiated curriculum taught by teachers who can bridge any gaps that may exist in their experiences. Now, here's what I mean by that. Do you know what an AVID program is? Does anyone use AVID in their districts? AVID is a program usually used in junior high school to take children from on-level classes and give them additional support one period a day or tutoring to help them be successful in upper-level classes. Children in poverty need that kind of support, an additional study period where they can learn those hidden rules and complete any, if you have tutoring set up already, you can take these children that have gifted potential and put them into that tutoring session on how to develop those, that formal register and how to develop those thinking skills to help them be successful in gifted classes. And that's the differentiated part for them. Here are the gaps that they may have. They may not know the hidden rules. They need the formal register. They may need a wider vocabulary 
so that they can elaborate and use creative and critical thinking. They already have problem-solving skills, and we need to help them develop those in an academic session. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't say that right. Problem-solving skills in an academic setting, and we need to provide for their social and emotional needs. And this is for all gifted kids, not just children in poverty. I hope that you have also, if you've signed up for this, that means you've been to the AHA Process website. And I hope you've been exposed to the new book that Ruby has put out on emotional poverty. It addresses social and emotional needs. And as she has said, the children who seem to be suffering the most are not children from poverty as much as it is children from middle class and wealth that are uh, doing these uh, mass shootings. Those children aren't poor. And some of them, both at Columbine and in Newtown uh, and on other ones have actually been in give, gifted programs, but yet they did not have their social and emotional needs addressed. So they felt apart from, different than, excluded. And so we need to work on that for our gifted children. In poverty, we need to support them, their interpersonal skills and their social responsibility, as well as how they feel about themselves. So these are things that in poverty, as all gifted children need that. And this book provides good tools to use for developing that. I'd really like to have some feedback from you. Questions, comments, what's something you're wondering that uh, I could answer for you here? I know that I don't have time to do a real in-depth, and we're almost out of time now. But I want to go on and talk for just a minute. Please write if you have anything you'd like to comment or a question that you have about this book. I hope that you will sign up for the training so I can teach you how to use the tools that are in this book. In secondary design options, mentoring works really well. Counseling and academic support is needed. The great thing about high school is that children can self-select beyond academics for music, art, debate, and leadership, and they do. So that is can be addressed for children uh, that learn. They will be successful in high school if they can master the hidden rules and formal language. But here's something. Um, it says, about, uh, someone asked, do you have any thoughts about the grade level screeners? I don't know what they are. Um, this, um, we have some in here. They may be fine. It depends on what they're screening them for. Are they screening them for creativity? Are they screening them for reading and math? Uh, a screener can be just characteristics that are observed. And if you are using that kind of a screener like we often use in kindergarten, I highly recommend the teacher survey that's in here because it looks at it from positive and negative traits. So that's my thought on that is I don't, every district uses a different screener, so I can't say they're all good or they're all bad, but I'd look at it and see how middle class it looks as far as what they're looking for. Nowhere in your state curriculum 
does it say to use your imagination to do anything? And we need to give children opportunities for creative thinking. And when we talk about the effective needs, we want to talk about how does the child feel about themselves? How do they get along with others? Because gifted children don't suffer fools lightly and can be very impatient with others who don't catch on as quickly as they do. And we have to teach gifted children to be patient, to get along with others, to let others lead, when to follow. And those are all part of those interpersonal skills. And we want to teach social responsibility. This is this I am part of a community of school. I am a part of a community of my neighborhood. And it's not just about the earth, but it is about um, it is about being a part of a society. And that gets into Dr. Payne's emotional poverty book. So they don't feel less than or apart from the others in which they share this world. And that will help them emotionally grow and develop. And my last question is, if you don't attempt to see beyond the mass of poverty and remove it, who's going to do it? We've been talking about this book for 17 years, and there's still so many people out there who are not. They're using it as a class segregation. They're using gifted programs for that. And it's very subtle. But if you look around and if your gifted program in your school is all white or all middle class, but your classrooms aren't, there is an equity problem in your campus. And I hope that you will consider removing the mask and um, uh, I appreciate uh John, uh, Shan says, any thoughts about a way to present to parent options beyond letting children play games on cell phones? What can we uh, offer? One thing I want to tell you about cell phones. Did you know there's actually a drop in the vocabulary development over the last two years tested in children that are tested kindergarten through second grade? And it's directly related to screen time. Children cannot develop language through a screen because it's a passive one-way thing. You have to talk back and forth with children for that vocabulary to develop. And we are very concerned, we meaning educators, about being babysat in front of a TV, which happens in poverty a lot, or with screen time, whether it's a cell phone or an iPad or whatever. And that is not developing their problem-solving There, It may develop some problem-solving skills but not their vocabulary because they need to be involved with an adult in a two-way conversation. And that's the best advice that I can give you. Uh, I also, for parents, would like to give you a website that I have developed. That I have 25 blog posts on now about parenting gifted children. It's called www.writethisdown, and I will put it in the box, giftedchildmom.net. And uh, those have a lot of things for developing thinking, childmom.net, that are beneficial. And I hope that you will share that with them, um, as well as uh, our both Ruby's and my social connections. Here they are. Here's Ruby's 
and mine, you can connect with us on Facebook. Williams Educational Consulting is mine, and AHA Process has its own Facebook one. And Ruby herself is Ruby K. Payne. Uh, we are on Twitter as AHA Process, and I am as Ellen3610 with a small e on the Ellen. And I keep a steady thing going, especially for parents, uh, for gifted children, because we need to develop their creative as well as critical thinking skills. And being on screen time is not the best way to do that. But I do on my blog give you a lot of tools and a lot of resources that you can use with parents. Uh, we need to wrap up now. Our time is just about up. And so if you have uh, goodbye, thank you for joining us. If you have a question or something, please contact us and um, on social media. In any, any questions, we do want to hear from you. And all of these, the book and the tools here are available on the, in the shop on ahaprocess.com. Thank you.